like the fact that I get like an email blast when it's like new sprinkles release. You know, you're that dick and it's how it is. Bombshell is a spectacular mix of pink, peach, and gold with accents of purple and turquoise. It is so beautiful and charming. Like any true bombshell. Ribbons and Pearls has a dainty pastel pink and gold blend of sugar crystals and beads. It reminds us of a Fabergé egg. Delicate and sweet. Gold Italian tranches, edible glitter stars, and pearls are the highlights. I, I mean, honestly, this is like a very like of the moment palette. Wait, let's look at Little Prince. I don't like Little Prince. This is too like a wedding in 2007. I wasn't aware enough of what was happening in 2007 to, to know. I was so deep in adolescent angst in 2007 that I like couldn't tell you anything except that I was upset that we had switched from low-rise jeans to high-rise skinny jeans because I didn't look good in either of them. And I was like, why did we go from one kind of jean I look terrible into another one? And then I would like go home and cry. That was like my major concern about anything um, with the wider world at that time. My, remember recording this. Welcome back to Check This Please, the podcast where the history of every piece of furniture in the comic can be extrapolated during a Zoom call. Today, we're going to be talking about comic 2.15. Uh, it's A, it's, it's A, uh, which was originally posted on December 30th, 2015. I am Secret, and who has been listening to me talk about the history of every chair in my childhood home for the past three hours? I'm Tomato. I'm sitting on the floor. The history of the floor is it was built earlier this year and it's made of concrete. Thank you. That's really cool. I think that has a nice industrial vibe. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, what happens in this badly titled comic? In a conversation that spans notable events from the entire past year of the comic, Biddy moving into the house, Hazapalooza, Epic Hegster playing Shitty, and during the team's travel for the Frozen Four, Ransom and Holster debate which one of them would make a better captain, each arguing in the other's favor. Holster celebrates Ransom's scholarliness, high scoring, and defensibility on the ice, while Ransom insists that Holster's speeches, spontaneous defensive plays, and checks are worth the role. Finally, Jack announces that the captaincy goes to both Ransom and Holster, with a vote split evenly down the middle. The comic ends as they bump fists. So before hockey stopped being part of this comic, uh, we used to talk about what was going on with the hockey details in the comic, and... I guess we'll spend, I don't know, a hopefully not too long talking about the particular function of the hockey element of this comic, which is the role of the captain. Every team across every league and even like within single leagues basically has their own system for picking captains and different approaches have different advantages. Sometimes, yes, like we see at Samwell, a team will just vote and then the winner of the majority of the vote 
is named the captain. Other teams will have the captain appointed by a coach or by a manager or by some consensus among these parties. So it's not standardized, but it does tell you something about how the Sam Wellman's hockey team works. NHL teams are not obligated to have a cop captain, and it's not uncommon for them to just like not. They'll have several alternate captains, but they don't necessarily have to name one. However, when they do, if they win the Stanley Cup final, then that's the guy who like gets to lift the cup first. So yeah, I mean, he's kind of considered like the, the spiritual center of the team. Officially, the captain is the only player on the team who's allowed to speak to the refs. And that's true both in the NHL and in the NCAA. What a hockey captain does in an unofficial capacity is a sort of much more extensive set of, I don't know, like soft obligations. So the captain kind of fills a spiritual or leadership role. It's like this soft grounding encouragement that kind of comes from the center of the, I don't know, the heart of the team. Like the sort of stuff that Jack mostly doesn't do. Unofficially, the captain tends to represent the team like to the coaches or the management. So if you think back to in one of the very earliest comics, Jack talking to Hall and Murray about Biddy's fainting and saying, is this, is this guy really right for this team? It's unclear if there's consensus that Biddy sucks and it seems like Jack is just sort of taking it upon himself, but effectively that is something the captain would do is be the person who's like, oh, I think that in the best interest of the team, I'd better go talk to the coaches about this player who seems like a problem. So this is one way in which Jack does seem like a good fit for the captaincy. Like he clearly sees himself imbued with authority and isn't afraid to use it. Hockey captains are typically also like role models. And they're often, but not always, the best player on the team in some capacity. NHL teams in particular will kind of appoint a captain to be the face of the team in a sort of PR sense. And that's a gesture where a team is saying, like, this one person sort of represents who we are as an organization. And obviously that's part of their media character. Probably the most prominent example of this is like the person who Sidney Crosby is as the captain of the Pittsburgh Penguins also kind of represents to like fans and the media how the Pittsburgh Penguins want to be viewed. So like highly elite, no nonsense, productive, focused on winning, and like very tied into sort of Pittsburgh legacy. So like, you know, Crosby has this very particular kind of mentorship relationship with the team owner, Mario Lemieux, who was a legendary Stanley Cup winning Penguins player. And so if you think of the Pens, you think of them as a sort of package and part of the way that they have this relationship. So it's just like this one person is a logical choice to like represent what the team wants fans to think of when they think of them. You can pretty much read this with like a number of hockey captains who have a definitive media personality. And this is one way in which Ransom and Holster are way more representative of what we see of Samwell than Jack, actually, because the rest of the school seems to think of them as chaotic and frustrating and gregarious, which is much more like Ransom and Holster than it is 
serious and focused like Jack is. But probably the main thing that Ransom and Holster are well suited to in terms of being captains is that captains have a social role. So they typically plan social events and you see Ransom and Holster doing that with kegsters. And in the NHL, they tend to like accommodate rookies. This is just something that it seems like these two guys are pretty much already doing. Alternate captains by the rules are designated to speak to referees when the captains aren't on the ice, either because they're just not there or the team doesn't have any. At the time when this strip is set, so like going to the 2015 to 2016 school year, if I'm reading the NCAA rule book correctly, it seems like schools are obligated to have at least one C. And like, I don't know, reading the details of this strip, against what Ngozi's intentions are. It seems like that might have been an error of hers. But then I saw in 2017, apparently, Harvard men's hockey had three C's, literally three captains. And according to the NCAA rulebook I consulted, the stipulation is that if a team has three C's, then that's fine so long as one of them is the official captain designate per game. So like all three of those C's can't talk to the ref. The ref has to know which of those captains is the designated captain for the game, if that makes sense. So all of this is to say that, yeah, I think technically both Ransom and Holster could have had C's, but I guess that would have just been confusing. Anyway, what happens with this actual vote, I think, is that literally 50% of the team votes for Ransom and 50% of the team votes for Holster and they vote for each other. So that's a very idealizing outcome, isn't it? Because it sort of implies that literally everybody on this team either wanted Ransom or Holster. There was no potential third party. Or does it mean that Ransom and Holster got an equal portion of the majority of the vote? Like if there's 20 people on the hockey team, let's say they each got seven and then the other six votes were six randos. I think because of the way check please works and the sort of like sense of destiny that tends to come into play with each of these characters that we're supposed to understand this to be 50% of the vote for Ransom, 50% for Holster, and then each one voting for the other. But I kind of like it if it's not that and they just squeaked by and actually like I don't know Chowder got six votes or something like I think that would be pretty funny. Yeah that would be funny actually I mean I think there's probably somewhat more than 20 guys on this team but it would be funny if it was like seven for Ransom seven for Holster and then like pulling up the rear some other guy got six. It was wiki the whole time. I think maybe we'll talk about about this more when, uh, spoiler, Biddy becomes captain. But yeah, I mean, you'd think that like the political or like the dynamic of this particular situation would be a lot messier or it would be a lot more coordinated. It makes a lot of sense that everybody voted for Jack last year. Like he was already the captain and they seemed to do pretty well. It just makes sense that like unanimously everybody would vote for for Jack. But in in a year where you're filling a three-year captaincy that's now you'd think either there'd be a coordinated push to like get one person in or it would just be chaos. I don't know that this comic ever liked chaos, but I think we're really coming up hard on its limit for chaos since all chaos really disappears by the middle of year three, in my opinion. I think that there's not a lot of appreciation for that kind of messiness at this point. It's not the story that this comic's trying to tell, so why spend pixels on it, I guess. Well, I 
think this becomes relevant when Biddy becomes captain. So if we were doing a YouTube video, I'd say put a pin in it and I'd point up to a little bullet point or something that would appear over my head. We're not. So um, just try to remember that we have this conversation a year from now in a comic timeline. I think we both thought that last strip was the best strip. This strip is also good as like a standalone thing. It makes a lot of sense. As part of the larger Check, Please story, I think the questions that I have are, okay, this is fun, but like, why do we care that Ransom and Holster are captains? What is this relevant to? I think it's not particularly relevant to the story the comic ends up telling. I do think it's relevant if you are now invested in Ransom and Holster and their friendship and kind of like their characters. I do care about Ransom and Holster. You know, they were very important characters when I got into the comic long, long ago, and I still care about them in ways that I don't care about Tango or whoever. No offense, Tango, but you know. But the stakes haven't been built in to this throughout the comic. Essentially, I didn't even know that either of them were likely options for the captain role until this strip. And I haven't been thinking about the captain role since Jack was voted into that position. So there aren't a lot of narrative stakes in either of them winning. And because of that, it feels like this is just the machinery of the comic kind of chugging along rather than a narrative blossoming from, you know, seeds that were, were laid or whatever in the past. And so that stops it from feeling that particularly relevant unless you're really invested in the characters, I think. Yeah, and I think to that point, Jack has waxed philosophical as is his way about the fact that he's played his last game and is moving on. He shed some tears. And it seems like Biddy, who is into him, is obviously going to be sad that he's leaving. But there really hasn't been any discussion whatsoever about the fact that this powerhouse of a player who is NHL bound and has been the team captain for three years is effectively going to be leaving both a giant talent and a giant power vacuum. You'd think on an actual hockey team, even one that regularly has player turnover every single year, although I guess every hockey team does because of like trading and shit, you'd think there'd be some discussion about this on the team itself. Like, what are we going to do without Jack? Who are we going to bring on to replace Jack? Who is going to fill this role? This one guy has been leading the team for the past three years. That's either 75% or 100% of the playing experience of literally every single person on the team. This should be something that if this was a comic about hockey or a comic about a hockey team would be an issue and like a source of conflict. And in keeping with the author's feeling that she prefers sources of conflict that aren't like a villain or a person, but rather just like a situation. Well, there you go. That is one. And it just is not addressed. I never really thought about it before, but it is true. Having said that, here's what I think. This particular comic, like the strip, is very invested in being a fan and a follower of Check, Please, to the point where you really have to be conscious of what was happening in these original strips and or what these moments were referring to in order to like get this some of the things that are referenced here happened 
in real life well over a year before this strip was posted. And some of them were only ever referenced in extras or the Twitter. For example, that Biddy's mom drove him up and helped him with prettying up the house. So in that particular panel, you just see this blonde head from the background and Biddy's mom has not been in this comic since the very beginning of the comic in real time at this point over two years so the fact that you see her from behind and she's just in the background in this strip where like the main text of the scene is something completely different you really have to be paying attention have a good memory or just be super invested in this canon and like following every little extra to like know like oh that's Biddy's mom she drove him to school and is there helping clean the house up otherwise how do you know who this blonde head from the back is or would you even notice that it's there I don't think this is necessarily bad I do think in this particular strip it makes for like clever storytelling but it also does happen to just be true on that note I think this particular strip is one place where how you consume the canon maybe is very important to reception. So again, the moments these panels are referencing, you either were last exposed to those original moments well over a year ago, or maybe just 50 pages ago. And I think that's kind of like a big difference. I also think this just really privileges fan engagement with this comic. It's a hint of how married to its own fandom the story is going to end up being. Who is this comic for? essentially. And I think it's basically for people who have been like either really invested in Checkley's or following along the whole time or both. Just Although the- by the point when this is being posted, a lot of the people who have been either really invested in Checkley's or following along the whole time are being scared away by parse discourse. So just as someone who was not yet deep in the fandom, but was very invested in like the storytelling, It was really rewarding, actually, like feeling like your attention investment are being rewarded with little Easter eggs of moments, almost like the joy of extras, but in the comic itself, which as we've discussed a lot, like so rarely actually happened in the comic. So it was really a great reading experience, but it definitely, as you say, privileges, I guess, a fanish engagement or a really deep engagement with the canon rereading it, talking about it with people, you know, sort of like creating these moments of association with each of the big events that are referenced throughout this. Alternately, I guess, if you're thinking about this no longer as a web comic, but you're thinking about it as a graphic novel, which at this point, I think she is starting to anyway, then you're reading this all together, right? You're not waiting months and months and months and months between each update. And so this would actually work better. It was really rewarding for me. I really like the art of this strip, just like as a nice thing before we dive into sort of talking about how it works and doesn't work. As you mentioned, I think it's like really nicely paced. I think the writing is good. I think that the way that the different elements are juxtaposed, like for me at least, are effective. And I think visually it's really appealing. I really like that each moment so clearly evokes the thing that happened. Like, obviously I have reread this comic many times and I think about check please more than like probably most people think about check please, I would wager to say. But I think that it's really, really smart that the color schemes and lighting of each scene is so specific that you immediately recognize, oh, they're playing shinny, right? Like that's kind of amazing that that's able to be evoked through just a blue sky and the fact that they're playing hockey outside, obviously. But just the the blue sky is like a really smart and simple way to 
evoke that as the lighting for the kegster with, you know, Biddy's worried face in the background as Hazelpalooza. I don't know. I just think it's like really, really smart the way that color cues and setting cues are used without overdoing it and not trusting the reader. This I think is a really good strip and the art feels so good because it's very much an exercise in trusting the reader, which as we've discussed before, Ngozi isn't necessarily always so good at. <laughs> Sometimes she tends to like over explain. And I think this comic doesn't really do that. I think that's part of why it's so good. But one of the things I find frustrating about this comic is the pacing. Like, I understand why all of these incidents have been collected into this one strip. I understand what it's doing. It's kind of like showing us how this conversation has been evolving throughout the year. But I can't help but think it would have been more effective if either we'd been seeing the argument in the background this whole time, or we'd at least had some knowledge that this was a tension between the characters. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think this needs to be something that's like sewn into every strip or like sporadic strips. I think just like some pointed comments somewhere would have set this up a little better and there is this one moment where they're sitting at I don't know the diner or whatever it is uh in I think post one where one of them says to the other like ransom and holster you know you sound so captain like so I guess that is a little bit of foreshadowing that like one of them is going to end up being captain and then there's the ransom and holster your captain's uh moment that Jack has at the end of shinny but I didn't really feel like that was creating tension or setting up a question. So I think some character expressing somewhere anxiety over what's going to happen, even just in one instance, would have left this question open somewhere. Yeah, I totally agree that some kind of meaningful introduction of this tension would have added teeth to the outcome. Like we all would have been like, oh, who's going to win? As opposed to not even knowing it was a question at all. Because I didn't like know or care who was up for captain next. It didn't even occur to me to care about it because I was really focused on what was happening. And because I had been taught as a reader because of Jack being, you know, unanimously chosen last time, not to expect surprises, you know, it makes total sense narratively that Jack would be the captain. But what that does is that it teaches the reader that this is not a moment of tension that you need to linger over. It's not a recurring motif that you'll need to kind of attend to because we've been taught that it will be resolved. So if you want to reopen that tension, you need to reintroduce the tension as a writer. At least that's how I understand this. And that's what never happened. So that's why, although this is a really smartly written strip and I really enjoy all of the different ways that this argument is being woven throughout other scenes that I recognize, I think that it's not so effective because it feels like it just kind of comes out of left field. Like I haven't been thinking about who's going to be the captain at all. And I think this is maybe indicative of like larger problems that the comic has in terms of its like storytelling effectiveness. And I believe we'll eventually loop back around there. So keep listening, fans. I think it's time for our recurring segment, Shouter Infantilization Watch. He's in this strip. Seems like every time he's in any strip, he's being infantilized. So how about that? It sure is an interesting pattern, isn't it? So Chowder is like barely in the strip. You know, he's a background character, like most characters are background characters. And yet twice he is infantilized. During Hazelpalooza, we already talked about how Chowder gets a sweater and nobody else does. But Chowder here complains, oh, it's kind of itchy. And the way that he is 
portrayed and the way that he's talking about the sweater, it just feels very young. Uh, and then again, while playing Shinny, when Holster argues that Dex looks up to Ransom and Ransom argues that Nursey looks up to Holster, um, they agree that Chowder looks up to everyone because Chowder skates up to them both and shouts, amazing, you know, all capital letters with two exclamation points in a way that is just sort of pure and innocent and cute, but not actually like a sophisticated understanding or sophisticated representation of what happened on the ice. So for me, that also feels really young and like he is celebrating them without sort of like specifically discussing or understanding maybe what happened. For me, those are both mild, but still extant chatter and fantasization incidents that are worthy of thinking about. Yeah. I mean, if you look at that Hazelpalooza panel, look at sort of the contrast in how Jack is drawn and how Chowder is drawn. Like they're both being hazed. They're both blindfolded. Jack is um, shirtless, whereas Chowder has a sweater. So you can kind of think that they're like sort of socially in the same position at this point. This is not a moment at which Jack is the captain. He's basically been like degraded to the point that Chowder is at, but just something about like his posture and the fact that he's not saying anything like babyish and nobody's telling him to shut up. You can see that he looks like an adult and Chowder does not. And like, I'm sure part of that is because of his braces and somebody's telling him to shut up. He's in the foreground and he looks smaller than the two people who are leading him. Whereas Jack is obviously much larger than Biddy, even though Biddy is technically, you know, the Dom in this situation as he would be many times after this. But again, th the point of this is not to say like, oh, Jack should also be infantilized, although I'm sure he would enjoy it. I think it's just to kind of like point out the way that the comic on purpose or inadvertently ends up framing Chowder a certain way. It's a real thing that's happening and it's a series of visual decisions that are structuring this thing that's being communicated. Yeah, totally. This is apropos of nothing, but a headline just popped up on my phone letting me know that Lil Wayne had been pardoned. So good job, everybody. Oh my God, Tomato, I've been waiting all day to see who Trump is going to pardon. Did he finally? Yeah, he, so far, the only headline I see here includes Steve Bannon and Lil Wayne, but I'm sure there are others. This is just what the headline chose to prioritize. Oh, Elliot Broidy. You know what? Never mind. Move, move along. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway. We'll, we'll deal with that later. Welcome at Texas, please. The podcast where we're very interested in who's going to be pardoned. So we're going to read this comic, starting with the first panel, basically to kind of explain like what's going on. So in uh, panel one, this is set during 2.1, moved in, or rather it's set adjacent to that. Um, what you can see is that there's a lot of cute details. Biddy's mom is in the background, as previously mentioned. Biddy is carrying... Uh, the two curtains that would end up being hung in the in the window over the sink. Those are his aunt's curtains. Which one? We don't know. He has two, Connie and Judy, at least on his on the Phelps side. But we know that those are his aunt's curtains because when his dad comes to visit the house in year four, he will remark on it. And then as you can see, Biddy has brought 10 boxes of baking supplies, which 
honestly, I find that very relatable. And then you can see that he has a little to-do list about making the bulletin board with the shore wheel on it. Uh, it hasn't been properly filled out yet. And we spent a lot of time talking about what was on that bulletin board. And you can see that it basically, he's got a to-do list that says make shore wheel with a little heart because he's very excited about it. Next panel with Hazapalooza. I love this quote. How can anyone do it after Jack? He's like the George Washington of Samwell hockey. I feel like this is simultaneously sublime and just like insane. Like I'm not going to get into it, but it's just like the absurdity of comparing Jack Zimmerman to George Washington is just like, what? But also like definitely something that some idiot like this would say. And yeah, I think Ransom is carrying one of the traffic cones that they lit on fire. Still have no idea how they did that. And I think it's very funny that Ransom and Holster are wearing sunglasses at night. You know, like idiots. Then we've got this comic that I want to say is set during Parse 2. So 2.8. The reason I'm making this guess is because... It seems like Parse is already there and most of Parse 1 happens before he shows up. And then Parse 3 is, is all set upstairs and Parse is obviously not upstairs yet and neither is Biddy. So this is set either right before or right after Parse 2. I like this thing about Ollie and Wicks having a fist bump for Ransom and Holster's hockey accomplishments because the joke is... Ollie and Wicks, the only thing they do in the comic is fist bump. They fist bump about everything. That's what's funny about this joke. It's like, they have a fist bump for it. Well, that doesn't make it special. It's, that is the only thing they do. I, I just, I found that really, really clever and I enjoyed it. Holster says that his ideas that he comes up with plays on the ice are, are stupid. And he's right, they are. They're universally stupid. So I like the idea that Holster is like, maybe kind of the one character in this comic who's not fully invested in the narrative because it's like he knows that he's a character in a comic coming up with stupid plays. In terms of the timeline of what's happening here, I really just want to point out that like this comic panel kind of doesn't make any sense. And here's why. It's hard to say if this is supposed to be before Ransom and Holster meet March and April and start telling them about the secret Jack Parse history. This would have been a good time to like slot March and April back into the fic, but no idea if this happens before that or after that or like why they would be talking about this at this party. Parse is in the middle of playing Pong with Lardo or Flip Cup, actually. It's, he's playing Flip Cup with Lardo. But it seems like Jack has already gone upstairs, and Biddy is worriedly looking for him as if something bad was happening because Jack is missing. But then, like, Parse is still downstairs playing Flip Cup with Lardo, who is also not in this comic, but they do say that she is burping at him. So once again, we have a recurrence of Lardo is this, like, you know, wigged-out bro who's very atypically feminine and fratty, but you don't actually see her performing this gesture or even the noise of it. It's only something that people comment on. It's not something that happens. And just when you take all of this together, it's very unclear what the sequence of events is. It's like Parse hasn't gone upstairs yet, but Biddy is frantically looking for Jack in this house where it should be very apparent that Jack has gone upstairs. So uh, just, uh, okay. Then we've got this panel set during Shinny 2.10. I would like to guess that Shatter is saying awesome in response to Biddy's jump, but 
it's hard to say. I mean, I, I do take your point about this being a well-designed panel because you know it's set during Shinny, even without a lot of background detail. But I do also think it's maybe worth pointing out that this is kind of like a very lazily designed panel because there's not enough scene setting to effectively place it. Again, when would they be having this conversation within this moment? Yeah, then finally, specifically, references to past comics. Uh, we have a comic that's set during or adjacent to 2.12, post one, Rhodey. Lardo's contribution to like the team at this point is going with one of the coaches to get the room keys or check out or something. So again, it just seems like, what is her job? What is it that she's actually doing here? It's, she's basically doing the equivalent of secretarial work. Oh God, I forgot I wrote this comment on the outline. Um, seems Seems out of character to me that Dex would cry based on one of Holster's speeches. And I'm not somebody who says that things that characters are said to do within a canon are in fact out of character. Cause it's like, if within the comic Dex is said to do X, Y, and Z, then it's, that is in the canon. So it's not out of character. It's a character did it, but it really doesn't, it's like, I don't think he cries at any other point ever. And I guess it's just to make the point that Holster's speech was really, really moving, but I just, I don't know. I don't see Dex crying. And then uh, Jack has his camera in case there might be a good opportunity to take a nice picture of this extremely generic Sheridan lobby, which I think is very Jack. Anyway, speaking of Jack, let me get these scenes at the banquet. And I think what's interesting is that what Jack says is is just more platitudes, platitudes upon platitudes. Jack Platitude Zimmerman coming through again with platitudes. He says, a captain is someone who embodies dedication, teamwork, and brotherhood. You could say that about anything. Like, a fisherman is somebody who embodies dedication, teamwork, and brotherhood. A gynecologist is somebody who embodies dedication, teamwork, and brotherhood. Who, who in fact does not embody dedication, teamwork, and brotherhood? Those are just like the most generic qualities that almost any role or any person could be imbued with. What I think is really interesting about this is that Jack later gives meaningful remarks when he has just come out dramatically after winning the Stanley Cup and has to go to a press conference. And then also when he proposes marriage and he just cannot bring himself to like specify an emotion to any particular meaningful moment at any point of his life. And I kind of like that because it's characterization that I buy. And obviously more on that when Jack says those things in the actual comic when we actually get there. But yeah, I mean, I buy obviously in this moment that, well, what's he going to say? Like, he's not going to say anything about how he feels. I mean, he says that it was the best year he's ever been a captain of a hockey team, but like, all right. I actually think that it would be really interesting if we got to hear any of Holster's speeches or anyone who is able to be different from Jack in this way, but not Biddy. The closest I think we get is probably Parse, which, you know, put a pin in that. We'll talk more when we get there about the way that emotions and experiences on the ice and so on kind of act as foils for each other. But I actually think that seeing Holster, known Jack hater Holster, would handle this sort of event differently would have been really, really interesting. And I didn't think about it until right now while you were talking, but 
I think that would be a really nice juxtaposition, different kinds of leadership that aren't Jack's style of leadership and that aren't Biddy's style of leadership. I think that would be really great. And I wish we'd have it. Well, we do get a little bit of holster speech because the Samwell Daily records him saying, the younger guys are stepping up and starting to lead. That's not enough for me to really understand the full context of the speech, okay? I want to know his rhetoric. I want to know what stirring metaphors he uses. Well, you want to know, it's like, so in the same panel, Jack says, momentum helps on the road. Going into the playoffs, we'll keep having each other's backs, which again is like platitudes, whereas it's not that what Holster is saying is that specific, but he's at least pointing to a specific thing that people on the team are doing rather than like the general concept of, you know, we're all in it together. Movement is happening somehow in one direction. It's yeah. just like a great bunch of guys and it's not about the team. It's about the, the guys and... The boys and the boys. The boys, yeah. Anyway, what else do we learn here? Um, should he's cut his hair off, which is something that we don't actually see happening until a flashback, I guess, in the next strip. So I wonder kind of maybe if that should have come before this, but I, whatever, it's of all the things, whatever. I guess ransom and holster fist bumping is an interesting symbolic choice because their gesture like obscures jack and he's leaving and they're replacing him but i also just think this is really bad framing like even though i understand it i just think it's a really bad framing and it looks awkward and weird jack is off center which of course realistically he would be it just looks like a like a very unbalanced moment and I don't like the way this is drawn. However, this is super important to my understanding of this particular strip. If you look at the header on the blog post, both Ransom and Holster are taller than Jack. Jack is 6'1", Ransom 6'2", Holster's 6'4". So I really like that they're standing with him in that header because they're both taller than he is and only rarely do we get to see Jack standing next to somebody who is taller than him and almost never do you get to see him flanked by two like larger men and i just find that like really satisfying i think if you've been listening to this podcast you can probably guess why but also interesting to note even though you'll never see it and it's not depicted here dex and nursey are both actually also taller than jack so think about that won't you i think this particular blog header would be like a really good new yorker caption contest style i agree i agree currently the only thing i'm coming up with is like how's the new cock cage jack so i'm really just got a one track problem here but yes i agree i mean i think this podcast has a firm pro jack zimmerman has a cock cage thing position all right whatever look anyway just fuck everything we said because speaking of jack's cock cage the main point of the strip is that jack and biddy are in love so in the background of all of these many happenings we see jack and biddy engaging with each other in a couple different ways at hazapalooza biddy is wordly guiding jack even though he's the one who's not blindfolded and i don't understand why he looks so worried and jack looks so chill but whatever that's what's happening it's because he's doming jack for the first time and jack's like oh i'm ready for the ride and biddy's like oh i hope i'm doing it right anyway he does it well enough i guess because onward they go and well jack is like do you think you can measure up to my previous lovers i mean jack is basically like biddle i have very high standards for my doms it's very topping from the bottom sort of thing you can see biddy is like well i put on this headband so i'm ready i guess like, oh, I hope I can live up to what Camilla Collins has left behind. So then we see Biddy wordly looking for Jack at 
epic hexter and then when we get to the sheraton lobby that jack is definitely going to take many fascinating photos of the fluorescent lights of we see biddy casually touching jack's chest and i actually think that these little moments these little background images of jack and biddy casually touching or kind of casually caring about each other are way more romantic than that super awkward loading dock hug we just saw after they lose the Frozen Four. That does not look romantic. That looks, as I discussed, like a little doll perched on Jack's shoulder in this kind of weird way. Biddy here, he does look short, but he doesn't look like a doll and he also doesn't look like a child particularly. They actually look like two adults who enjoy each other and have some kind of chemistry between them, which is pretty, for me, a bit rare. So it was a real pleasure to rediscover these moments particularly this moment in the Sheraton where Biddy is patting Jack's chest and Jack is standing casually with his eyes closed mid-conversation. They look like two adult men who like each other, which is really nice and kind of rare. I don't know. It's, it's really appealing to me and more convincing as, I'm just repeating myself now, but it's more convincing as chemistry than I think much else of what we've seen this year. Yeah, so I think that these little scenes of Biddy touching Jack are like really fun. And also to me at least, much more believable as like romantically intimate than even like the one-sided loading dock hug we just saw. He just repeated what you said because it was written on the outside. Uh, let's back up hard agree <laughs> no honestly like the casual vibe between them is more relatable to me and like more convincing than this like series of seemingly sporadic dramatic moments mostly because yeah I mean the people who I've liked it's like I like them because of like our interpersonal dynamic not because you know there was a, a beautiful moment where we <laughs> cried together at a loading dock or whatever so yeah, I mean, ultimately the realistic thing is that you want to make a life with somebody who you can like get on with in real time outside of the overly romantic, textually dramatic moments. And it's a shame that this isn't more often how Jack and Biddy's relationship is constructed. Something I will also say about like my reading of Jack and Biddy is it is moments like this scene in this hotel, which by the way, we do not know to be a Sheridan. It's that kind of shame, obviously. It's, it looks like it's not too fancy, but it's relatively upscale, kind of bland. You know what I'm talking about if you've been to a hotel. It seems like a little too nice to be a Holiday Inn, but it's clearly not the Ritz. So I don't want to spread misinformation that like, you know, in some deleted tweet somewhere it's con shared and confirmed or whatever. Anyway, part of how I read Jack and Biddy and like their relationship and their dynamic is kind of based on like the way in which their posture is set up in certain moments. And it does seem that Biddy tends to encroach on Jack's personal space. And as Tomato pointed out, to a certain extent, this just makes them come across as equals. I think Part of it in this particular scene, the reason why Biddy doesn't seem like doll-like or childlike, it's because you can't see his face. And unfortunately, you can't see his little Coraline vacant eyes. But yeah, I don't know. I, I like the moments between Jack and Biddy where Biddy is sort of almost possessively touching him, encroaching on his space. It, it happens a lot. And it's something that I'm interested to kind of like visually talk about. Even in moments where Biddy is not necessarily the person in the room with the most power, it's like the way in which he expresses kind of possession of Jack through use of personal space is very interesting. 
years in Japan. I hadn't sort of connected this moment to that larger thread that mostly starts happening in year three. So look out for more from these two. Anyway, look, I, I have a final take on this trip that actually kind of goes back to the conversation we started with, which was essentially about what's the meaning of this captain thing. And the case I want to make is that it's very like, check please typical, that the conflict, such as it is, is that two people are just too supportive and like too loving because they both want the other one to win. It's very gift of the magi like type, you know, problem where it's just like, oh, they're they're so perfect it's a problem. I would maybe temper my use of the the word conflict a little bit and I I would also point to tomatoes pointing out back when we were talking about Shinny and Junior Show several episodes back now that those strips functioned as a pause or breather after like a major tension ramping up over a really intense arc. And I think that after the Frozen 4 arc and before the graduation arc, this strip and the next strip kind of function as a similar pause or breather to give people a moment to like recalibrate or whatever. So if you want to think about conflict in that sense, this is a strategy that, that Checkpoint goes to over and over again, where it's like the conflict is they're both too great. Everyone is very blandly affirmational and supportive. And this is where I want to pull in this observation. Do Ransom and Holster not have ambitions? Are they truly so selfless and insecure that neither of them actually wants this or thinks that they deserve it? These are top tier athletes at a top tier school who are considered by, I think, Jack to be like the best D-man pairing in their conference. And they're seemingly fucking a lot of women and deeply popular people. And Ransom, even though he has obviously some comical anxiety going on, is a highly accomplished student. And they both go on and get apparently extremely high caliber consulting gigs at the same firm after this. So it's like the idea that both of them would be so insecure and selfless that they would not in fact want to be the captain of their own hockey team just doesn't seem to be in accordance with the kinds of characters these are. It's like too much or too problematic for any character other than Biddy when it comes to Jack to like want anything. It's like a flaw to have desire. And I think that's really fucked up. I just think it's really fucked up and it's also not believable. I just want to second that elite athletes, if you ever listen to anyone talk about sports psychology or my favorite podcaster Jonathan Taves just rambling wildly on some insane rant about vitamins or whatever. Thoughts and prayers to Jonathan Taves though, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's struggling. I don't know what's up with him, but Speaking as someone dealing with post-COVID lingering symptoms, like lethargy is real and I hope he figures out whatever's going on with him. That's the only time I've ever given thoughts and prayers to anybody. So Jonathan Taves, I hope you appreciate it. Okay. Well, and he deserves them, you know? Uh, yes, unlike so much. Tomato. <laughs> anyway, if you ever listen to people talk about sports psychology or you listen to people talk about team dynamics and so on, wanting something 
and putting your entire body energy, sacrificing yourself for that desire is a huge part of elite athletics. And actually it's a problem. That's part of the anxiety of being a very highly skilled and highly, what is it when you win stuff, like a really good player? That can cause the kind of anxiety that we actually see like Jack deal with in the comics, but, but it's a really common strategy for winning. So it's like very bizarre take that these two highly accomplished people who also seem to embody not having anxiety about hockey the way that Jack does. Very strange that they would not be ambitious because being ambitious is how you become captain of your nearly frozen four winning NCAA hockey team. Like it's, it's not only strange for the characters, but it's just a really weird way of talking about the hockey world in a comic that's, you know, about being a hockey captain. People in this comic are like punished for wanting things or thinking they deserve things or having preferences literally except for Biddy, who is pure of soul, wanting to dom Jack. And when I say dom, I just mean like he has a crush on him. Like other than that, other than that one infatuation, it is considered in the text of this comic, day class A to desire anything more than just being a pure soul who contributes brotherhood to humanity. I'm being completely serious. We saw Chowder last strip burst into tears because Jack told him that he had some value. <laughs> it's fucking insane. Every single person in this comic has the lowest self-esteem. Except, I guess, Shitty, who just is basically out of the comic now. Yeah, but he's sort of, I mean, when you think about it, right? Even Shitty, paragon of socially suave self-confidence or whatever. Even he is kind of forced by the narrative to give up something that's really important about him, as we'll see in the next strip in order to consider his future. He capitulates, he like assimilates into his family's desires for him. He doesn't like get what he wants, you know? We don't see enough character arcs to know what every character wants and what happens if they get it or if they dare to want it publicly, but I'm jumping the gun here a little bit, but I think this would be an interesting thing to rediscover when we think about Whiskey and his arc. I think we saw for Jack the desire to get into the NHL led to him having a fucking overdose. <laughs> like, I don't know, like, yeah, I think that's really astute observation. Well, it's this whole like overly referenced quote that Parse didn't grow because he got the things he wanted. Okay. We had plenty more to discuss about that whole thing, you know, at another time. Oh, plenty, plenty. And we're getting closer to yet another piece in the puzzle that's going yeah. to be just like going fucking apeshit for like hours on a podcast. But yes. I'm sorry, I, I realize this is kind of an inelegant place to like come to this realization, but it is true that it's it's just truly neither Ransom nor Holster actually has a concrete feeling about wanting to do this. That's what's nuts. And here's what I want to offer. I respect that the ethos of the comic is that sometimes people aren't the antagonist. The situation is just unsolvable. Like you're just in an unresolvable situation. The source of the conflict is just the system that built the situation that you're in. I think an interesting subversion of this to like give it stakes or like give it teeth without making it mean or like, oh, there's somebody who's a problem would be that neither of them want it because they're too busy or they don't want the pressure or they just don't want to do the work or they see it as a burden or they don't want to live up to Jack or like whatever it is. 
but you would have to see them actively not wanting it. Not just, oh, I don't know if I could do it. You're so much better than I am. But just like, oh God, don't give me this. Like, I really don't want to be captain of the hockey team. Like, it would be funnier if they were both like, oh God, oh fuck, don't make me do it. And then they're both named alternate captains and they're like, okay, well, I guess if I have to do this, you're the person I'd want to do it with. Maybe instead of a burden, it would just be fun. We already work well together as a team. And that would be strengthening their friendship in a way that is a really kind of cool and concrete elevation of the relationship they already have, rather than a fulfilling of their destiny to do everything together because they're BFFs and they have a special handshake or whatever, you know? Here's the thing. I I was always planning on making this argument when we talk about Biddy being voted captain, but I think like a really interesting comic leading up to this wouldn't be them being like, eh, but more so, you know, the politicking behind the scenes of trying to bribe the other hockey players or trying to cajole the other hockey players into either making them captain or making the other one captain. And the end result is it's a split vote and they have to share the captaincy or something where they're active participants than bringing this result about. But the way that it reads is just like, well, everybody just sort of had an understanding that on some cosmic level, this was always faded. It's just not very satisfying because it doesn't involve any like active agency from the characters. And the criticism that is very valid of check plays and made a lot in so-called OMGCP critical circles is that Biddy is like a very passive character who seeks out nothing, desires nothing, attempts nothing. But I think just kind of sticks to Ransom and Holster here as well. And I think it maybe actually is a broader trend than like just Biddy. Having said that, I would also like to point out that if the comic had more guts, which this comic has no guts, it has a lot of positive attributes, but guts are not one of them. This would be a good time to examine the following theme. We already in the last strip dealt with the fact that sometimes when you play a sport, you lose. Well, another disadvantage of playing a sport that is pretty common is that when you're on a team at this level, everyone is an ambitious elite athlete. And sometimes you just have to watch your friends succeed at the thing that you wanted to succeed at. Sometimes, Other people on the team, possibly because they're better than you, possibly for like no real reason other than just that's how it shook out, people get the things that you wanted. And it's part of just doing something in a competitive arena. At a certain level, it's not just people on the other team who are, you know, your competition. It's also people like within your own cohort because there's only so many like spaces. And why I think this is maybe a choice that the comic could have made, even though I know it obviously would not have, is because this theme is sort of already embedded in Check Please. It's there with the first half of year one lucky shot thing. And it's there with the Jack and Parse dynamics. Like, very textually, obviously, this is already an issue within the comic. And I don't know if it's that these dynamics were introduced much earlier, and now the comic is just like, you know, going in a different direction, in a different place, and it doesn't want to turn this rock over and see what's underneath. But I have to tell you, this could be an interesting place to sort of look at its disappointing when you want something and your best friend who you think of as a 
counterpart because you're a D-man pairing, like literally equals, one of you ends up in a, a different position. And it doesn't have to be like a like a massive clusterfuck or anything, but this is one of the things that the comic professed to be investigating, like at a couple of different points. In the same way that seeing Holster give a speech, you know, in contrast to Jax or whatever, I think being aware of characters' interiority other than Biddy's, not for a gag, would have done a lot to help the comic achieve the goals that it claimed it was trying to achieve. And the problem here, as you said, is not only that these characters are like not participating and don't have agency, but they like do not appear to have not even desires, but like interiority. There's no interiority here at all beyond you're perfect, you're perfect, you're perfect, you're perfect. So I think that like using this I'm just thinking this out as you say this, I'm sorry. But I think that using this to explore these particular characters would have given them interiority, but also like would have shown, you know, if this comic is teaching how to deal with disappointment, this would actually be a chance to show models for how to do that, like that aren't ODing and having to go to rehab and then having to go to Samwell or whatever, right? Like to show other modes of being that are not Jack or Biddy's. But the comic's not really interested in doing that, even though that's what it professes. Yeah, I, I mean, we're going to end up, I think, confronting more instances of moments where the comic could have built upon a theme and tried to demonstrate the actual substance of an issue. But I am, even though I think this is a good strip, I don't know how many times I have to say, like, as a self-contained standalone strip, it's really good. It really works. I realize that we've stepped away from framing our episodes like this, but this is a classic case to me. As a standalone strip, this is great. If this was released and I was reading it the day it came out, I would be so happy. I would be like, wow, that's really great. But when you start to look at it in the larger framework of the comic, it's like, well, I'm kind of piecing together that there's certain problems that I never really even thought about before. And it's not just that, oh, Biddy is passive, Biddy is simplistic. It's that nobody in this comic wants anything or has any sort of determination. They're all just sort of aimlessly proceeding as if any result is fine. And the narrative never challenges them with having to like confront any hard issues you'd wonder how these guys would react if one of them got the captaincy and the other one didn't. And I mean, I want to guess that the comic would show the one who didn't get it being like, I'm so happy for you. I really mean it. And like, you're supposed to believe it. But it also never even forces us to like see that. It just doesn't show us any disappointment. It's just like everybody always wins. Everything is always whatever the most ideal result is. I think that that's one of the problems, I guess I'll say, that we'll kind of keep confronting. And what some people find really valuable in this comic, that for me makes it very depressing. By taking away the potential consequences of an action, for me, that renders that action less meaningful. And for other people, it doesn't. So I think, you know, how we interpret what we see has led to a lot of the conflict in the fandom. That's really obvious, but it felt profound while I said it. So thanks for uh, listening. Well, I think half the people in this fandom are here because they're like, oh, I wanted to read a really sweet comic where everything is okay because life is so shit mm -hmm. that I just want to like think about this tall man standing next to two slightly taller men and being happy about it and proud to be a member of a brotherhood. 
And then the other half of the people are like me, where they're like, oh, here's a fucking comic about a suicidal drug addict. What's his deal? <laughs> it sounds sort of, I don't know, salacious and, and like exploitative. But the point is, I came into the comic with the expectation that the characters were going to be struggling at some point with something. And I mean, I guess Jack struggled a little last comic, but it's really the last time he's going to struggle very much. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's not true. Final thoughts, Tomato? Nothing's coming to mind beyond. Nice. All right. Well, that was this. <laughs> Next time, we're going to be looking at 2.16, Kiss the Ice. I have been Secret, and you can find me on Tumblr at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or S-K-R-T-O-M-G, or Familiar on the archive of our own. And you can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or on AO3. Every time I forget halfway through. Okay, let me try again. <clears throat> I'm Tomato and you can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. And you can find our podcast at checkdisplease.tumblr.com or on Podbean or on Spotify. And soon you can find some transcripts on our very new and exciting webpage, checkdispleased.xyz, the very best URL that could exist. That's what I got. Should I add anything else? I don't know. Lil Wayne was pardoned. Nice. Nice. Hooray. What a, what a day. What a banner day for somebody. All I have to say is that there was some... Speaking of anti-Semitic discourse, there was some anti-Semitic discourse several years ago over a Nicki Minaj song and the lyric that comes to my head when I hear the name Lil Wayne is, I never fucked Wayne, I never fucked Drake, all my life, man, for fuck's sake. And I really just think that probably when this pardon was made, the person making it was thinking also of that lyric. I'm sure. I'm sure. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, anyway, look. Yeah, guys. Uh, so we've been promising transcripts for a while. We've been kind of like promoing it in episode posts. And all I have to say is the main holdup here has been us trying to figure out what the best repository for these transcripts is. Because look, uh, Google is not really like a reliable place to just dump a bunch of things. It's not fully accessible for everybody. And also like as soon as you have 80 people, I'm sure there's 80 people who want to read transcripts of these episodes. As soon as you have like more than one person uh, on a Google Doc, it starts to get confusing. But then Tumblr is just like the worst place to read like a long text file. So basically what we've decided to do is create a web page where we can basically just post transcripts. Obviously, this is the recorded podcast that the people who would be waiting for the transcripts would not be hearing. But I'm excited. I think it's cool. Like Tomato said, we're at checkthisplease.xyz because checkthisplease.peen wasn't available. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, we could have just done something totally left field, like bottom separatist commune.com or something like that but i guess you know that can be a separate web page maybe like a subdomain point being if you go to that web page as of today little wayne pardon day you will see 
basically just like links to our tumblers and shit but we're hoping to get that site up and running and as one of this country's most in-demand web designers i think you're really in for a treat a plain text html treat i'm really excited because i think it'll rocket me back to 2004 when i snuck down to the family computer to read original fiction that people were hosting in courier new font on their personal websites when they didn't know how to do italics so everything was in forward slashes i think it's gonna feel a little bit like that and i'm i'm excited for that yeah and you want to know what my reference point is is of course the nifty erotic archives so i think we're we're going to be tiptoeing forward and and you know what else also the library of moria so great great I forgot about the Library of Moria, but I also spent some time there. Anyway, excited to join such important and seminal texts. <laughs> the first fanfiction I ever read was on the Library of Moria. I Have I talked about this on this podcast before? Basically, it was a, I, I looked it up because my roommate and I were very obsessed with Lord of the Rings. And I was like, you know what I bet is funny and would be amusing for us? Fan fiction about it. I know it exists, but I've never actually read any. And then, yeah, the, the fact is, yes, it was. It was funny for us. Uh, the first fic I ever read, and I like read it aloud to her for entertainment purposes, was a fic where like Saruman kidnaps Pippin and rapes Pippin. And then like a bunch of Urukai rape Pippin. And then Mary rescues Pippin and they have consensual sex like and that fixes it obviously so if you really really want to like get into like my feelings about things what you should do at the end of the check this please podcast episode as soon as it's over and you hear the credits send me an ask about Mary and Pippin discourse circa early 2000. That is a treat that I look forward to your answer about. I'm well, I'm only going to answer it if somebody sends it. Anyway, I think, ooh, what a night. What a night. Happy inauguration, everybody. And um, yeah, you know, thoughts and prayers to Jonathan Taves, Taser. Captain Sirius, you know, that guy. May his many, many green smoothies do something for him in this troubling time. All right. I think we will see you back here next time for Check Please comic number 2.16, Kiss My Ass. <laughs> Bye. Psych, there's more. Secret and I ended up having a really long conversation after I started recording because I thought the sprinkle thing was funny. And if you want to listen to some of it, which is Check Please and South Park Relevant, I have attached it here. Otherwise, we'll see you next time when we go back to talking from an outline. For context, Secret had not yet plugged in the special podcasting microphone, and we had somehow wended our way from skinny jeans in 2007 to talking about Biddy's religion. So that's the context for what you're about to hear. Enjoy, question mark, or not. I'm wondering, like, I guess if he's from Georgia, there's like a couple of options for like what what his religion would be, but... What are they, do you think? So North Georgia has a lot of Methodists. Okay, yeah. But Georgia in general has a lot of Southern Baptists. That's what I was thinking those two. So I'm interested to hear. And then there, I mean, I don't, I don't know that much about like what the, what the distinction between them is. But um, I mean, Southern Baptists, I think, are a bit more like eschatological. And I also know that, um, I mean, th- there's also just like generic like evangelists. Yeah.
one of my one of my really good friends growing up grew up Baptist but not Southern Baptists like Jersey Baptists and I'm not sure how significant the differences might be my good friend from Georgia grew up Southern Baptist and he was telling me that he went to school like the principal whose name was like brother something like they called everybody brother some like authority figures were like brother so-and-so this guy would like Paddle them if they uh, oh my God. acted out. My friend went to normal school, which is where I met her, but her church friends who I knew like through her were homeschooled and didn't believe in like evolution and stuff like that. But my friend did. Do you think Biddy doesn't believe in evolution? Do you think he's like, well, she's like, I, what if he's like a, what if he's like a middle of the roader? Like he won't not acknowledge evolution, but he's like intelligent design. You know, oh, yeah, obviously he's like, you can't look at this world and say the Lord didn't have a role in it. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. I kind of want to use my newfound religious knowledge that I'm gaining from going to religious services. I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm liking it. It's good. It's just weird. Anyway, I kind of want to use it for fanfic purposes. So put a pin in, in that. What, in what sense? Well, there are some characters I'm really interested in thinking about what I'm thinking about and being interested in it. But I think Biddy would be like, what is this? And not enjoy it. And I enjoy thinking about him not getting the radical queer uh, Shabbat service I went to last Friday, for example, and just being like- I mean, I don't think Biddy would go to a radical queer anything and certainly not a Shabbat service. I think maybe if he like got guilted into going to it, he would just be like- That's what, yeah. He's very silly. Yes, yes, that's what I'm saying. I don't think he would be awful about it. I just think he would be like, not. He's very like polite. Yeah, yeah. I think Jack, I like, here's the thing. I think like, I, I just can't imagine Jack is like, really thought about religion in any sense. I think he's just like, well, we celebrate Christmas or like, whatever. Like, I, I'm sure it like, doesn't mean anything to him. He's just like, uh, you know, I don't know. I think it's like, what do you mean you don't know if there's a God. He's just like, it's not that I don't know it, but I never thought about it. He's like, what do you mean you never thought about it? Um, but then anytime Biddy tries, like, I'm imagining now Shitty asking like difficult theological questions to Biddy and Biddy being like, I don't know. I, I like, I don't care for this kind of discussion in the kitchen. Shitty. He'd be like, do you think that like he'd be asking like really hardcore, like specific, like scriptural things, or do you think he'd be asking like just just like very like run-of-the-mill like you know atheist web circa like 2013 oh, like I, I think like atheist web circa 2013 but i do think that mfa verse dex could ask biddy some very hardcore scriptural questions that biddy does not appreciate really like what i don't know i have i don't know any scriptural questions because i don't know any scripture but i feel like there's like a pretty intense christian community in rural maine and i feel like maybe he was raised in it I can see like Southern, I can see like Southern Baptist Biddy just being like, no, Dex being like, you know, how could you possibly like be Southern Baptist and also like, or like, how could you possibly yeah. like, consider yourself a Christian and like, yeah, you know, you're having sex with like most of the people like in the vicinity. And Biddy is just like, well, I accepted Jesus into my life. And that's just like a get out of jail free card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I think I think Dex in my brain is a, is a very staunch ex-Catholic. And he just like does not 
like or appreciate. I mean, there's a lot of evangel. There's like a lot of evangelical stuff going on in rural Maine, but I don't know enough about evangelism to write about it except satire. I don't know enough to actually like engage with it. I very much see Jax as like a like a he he says Catholic just like all over him. Yeah, he does. He does. He does. I agree. I agree. Well, very good. I don't think Jack Zimmerman is supposed to be Jewish, but sometimes I think about your Jack Zimmerman like Passover discussion. And I think that's very good and very funny. Well, the thing that I thought was, I mean, the reason why I contributed to that is because it's just like people, it's because, I mean, and I think this still goes on to a certain extent, but like during that like 2015 to 2018 period of like Shaq Please fandom, it was just like an endless barrage of the most basic like unimaginative head canony least incisive just like can you imagine jack having a seder or whatever and it's like okay yes i can and here's how it would go he would suck it would be a bad experience this is something i struggle with in it fandom which i think i talked about before not because i know so much about judaism at in general, which I only know from having friends who are Jewish or whatever, but one of the characters is canonically Jewish and the things that people write about him being Jewish are like the most, oh, you've never even looked up an article about this. I see bullshit, which whatever, it's fine. But I find it frustrating. My experience is all like Kyle discourse from South Park fandom. So like that really informs me, but it's like, no, I I mean, like, I like the idea that Jack you know, would be Jewish or his family would be Jewish. I don't think he would be like religious. No, I don't think he would be either. I think he's just it's like he doesn't have room for that in his life and he's just like not that deep a thinker. So like I just don't, you know, by but intentionally he's not that deep a thinker. He's just like I just won't think about it. I feel like, yeah, people would just make you know, what if, you know, give me headcanons about like, you know, blank like difference this character mm-hmm. and yeah it was just like people making these stupid posts about like what did jack celebrate as passover and i was just like okay well like this is how jack would celebrate passover it would be not cute like i don't know <laughs> and and ultimately you know probably if he's on like a good hockey team he would be in the middle of the fucking season and he would never if I'm sorry, I just don't think he would be like, guys, I can't play during uh, round two because I have to get the comets out of my house. People be like, what is that? And he's like, well, and then like explains it for half an hour. Uh, and I have to sell it to a rabbi for a penny. And then he'll sell it back to me. And people are like, well, why do you have to get out of the house? And he'd be like, well, because it's not close to a Passover. People would be like, what? It's just like, I'm sorry. It's just like he's, he's, and here's the thing. Like, obviously you can like celebrate Passover without cleaning. I've never kept close over Passover in my entire life. And neither has anybody in my immediate family. Like my grandparents didn't, my parents didn't. Like you don't keep any sort of kosher whatsoever and never have. So obviously like I'm aware that you can like, have a fun time with Passover and also just like eat bread yeah. <laughs> but um or whatever yeah just the idea it's like have you thought this through like what like what do you think he's gonna like stop playing hockey to like engage in this process like no like it's just it's not gonna happen what like what what if like the first Seder is on like an away game like I'm sorry he's just like not this just like isn't this character so that was the that was the impetus for that uh that post 
which somebody called anti-Semitic. I forgot that. Yeah, somebody sent me an ask because it was like at the end of the post I wrote something like, not that I think he would waste his time on this. Uh-huh. He sent me an ask that was like, um, saying that a Seder is a waste of time is not is kind of not okay. And I was just like, well, speaking of somebody who's gone to a Seder two times a year, every single year of my life, and also has like thrown several of them. I think I reserve the right to like facetiously say that it's a big waste of time. And this person was just like, mm, okay, fine, but maybe you want to actually, I never even published that. So. Oh, really? Oh yeah. The person followed up and was like, I'm glad it was a joke, but it seemed almost derisive. And it's like, yeah, it, it was derisive. Like it, it was a derisive joke from me. Uh, yeah. I feel really weird and like I don't really get to have an opinion as someone who is like not Jewish and who I'm sure has like not been always the best ally in my entire life because like I'm not Jewish right I feel like performative worry about anti-semitism on Tumblr and fandom spaces is fascinating to me because I see similar tonal like leftist posts that are anti-semitic like I just I'm not saying it's the same people but I find the way the Tumblr talks about Judaism when it's not Jewish bloggers writing about it, like to be very confusing. You know, most people have like their own version of Judaism. I think mm-hmm. partly because of like the diasporic sort of like, you know, bizarre, like acculturated way like Jews exist in the world. Mm-hmm. But also because unlike a lot of religions, Judaism doesn't have any kind of like central authority. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, yeah. there's no, like, it's like the point of a rabbi is to, like, basically, like, teach you if you're open to it, but mm-hmm. it's also, it's it's like, there's no requirement that to practice Judaism, you you have to be associated with a synagogue, go yeah. to synagogue, like, pray, you know, like, engage in any kind of, like, hierarchical anything. Yeah. But I know most people, you know, most people who consider themselves Jewish and and value that, you know, do belong to a synagogue because it's just sort of like, that's how it is. You know, it's like, it's, it's like, you know, nobody wants to like, who's going to like teach themselves trope? Like who's going to like, you know, coordinate their own funeral or whatever. So that's why people tend to like associate themselves with a synagogue, even if they're not like looking for, you know, spiritual guidance necessarily. But unlike, I think, a lot of Christian denominations, if not most of them, Mm -hmm. it's like, there's no, there's no like central authority who's there to tell you that you're doing something wrong or that you should do something a different way. That's part of why I like it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of why I like it too. The reason why I connect to it is because it, it is sort of like a, I, I think it's like a, a culture that I relate to that I think encompasses all different, you know, types of like cultural, cultural appreciation and cultural expression. Having said that, I think the result of that is that a lot of people who are trying to be like educational on Tumblr Mm-hmm. to speak from a position of like definitiveness and I I think that even coming from like other Jewish people that that tends to feel like wrong that makes sense to me it's like people you know people 
But it's like Kyle's family on South Park, like they're obviously like they're, like pretty religious. Like the mother like plainly wears a wig mm-hmm. and the father wears a kippa and he has like payas or whatever. And they mm-hmm. send their kid to like Jewish school and Jewish camp and like the synagogue and all of this stuff. They appear to be like relatively, like they celebrate Hanukkah. So like they appear to be relatively observant. But then it's also like they eat like, you know, like Kyle isn't kosher, like they're not kosher, like they're like Kyle definitively has eaten like bacon or whatever, like on the show. And people would be like wringing their hands over like trying to figure out how to like either express this in fan works or like resolve it in fan works or trying to tell other people, you know, how to like write this character. And it's like, my problem with all of this like I, I don't know back and forth process is that it, it's like it just doesn't feel contradictory that these mm-hmm. people would find meaning in these particular gestures but also like just not keep kosher like I just it, it just like doesn't it doesn't seem contradictory I think it's you know not super common like if you're going to be that Jewish you probably also keep kosher but then everybody's interpretation of what kosher is is like mm-hmm. very different like for some people it's like the only food they will consume on any level at all is food that's been okayed you know one of a couple of varying degrees of strictness like kosher certification boards other people you know it's like they only keep kosher in the house or they you know they're kind of like kosher style where it's like mm-hmm. they don't mixed meat and milk and they don't eat crab mm-hmm. but like they only have one set of dishes and you know they don't like fervently check the label on things tons of people who like don't keep kosher but they just like don't eat pig products for whatever reason and they're just kind of like oh it just never it just it just never seems like something to do it's like I'm not kosher it's just like I don't eat pork yeah that's like my my dad is like that I mean my dad's a vegetarian now but before he was a vegetarian he just he didn't keep halal but he didn't eat you know pork or whatever whereas my parents like my parents are just like you know it's open season on everything like they have no like no interest in being kosher on any level whatsoever except when they had a seder the seder for whatever reason always had to be kosher style which means for whatever reason, like not, not like everything has to be kosher, but just things had to be like in the spirit of kosher. So it's like, you couldn't serve like a shrimp appetizer or something, or it's like you wouldn't put like bread on this, like you wouldn't serve bread, like with the seder, it would have to be masa, because it's like, it's like the gesture, it's like the the gesture is important, like for just like literally the one night of the seder, like you could eat like French toast for breakfast, but then the Seder you couldn't have bread at. I, I say this mainly to just like express that it's like, I don't know, for whatever reason, it's like that was just like what was, that was just like meaningful. This one, it's like one performative gesture that was like completely ludicrous. Mm-hmm. But for, what, for whatever reason, I don't know, it's just like making this one gesture. Was, I don't know, it just like made sense to them. I don't know. I guess it's just because I grew up in a place which meant I've had 
a lot of Jewish friends with lots of experiences, like different kinds of family and personal experiences. But everyone I know, their own experience of either their family's Judaism or their Judaism or whatever is like so vastly different. And the way that they navigate, whether they grew up in similar congregations or not, the way that they like navigate their relationship to Judaism is so vastly different. And, and I have friends who have gotten more observant and less observant and what observant means to them is vastly different. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's like a hugely varied experience. Thinking in fandom when people try to write about Judaism without doing any research or like talking to somebody or I don't know. I feel like um, it's just confusing to me. I don't know. It's like very, it's like very disorienting or something because it's so different from what I have heard about just from people I know. I don't know. Which I guess is like very obvious, but but I haven't been in a fandom where people, people would write fic where like Bucky was Jewish, but I never really read that. And I also didn't think it was like convincing. I have to tell you, knowing almost nothing about that character, like the fact that his middle name is Buchanan and his last name is Barnes, he's not yeah. Jewish, I'm sorry. Well, people would argue what his mother could be. And it's like, I guess she could be, but like, maybe, but but I don't think it's convincing. And then people would write these fics that weren't particularly like good or convincing. I don't know. Like whatever, I mean, I don't know. Representing a character is Jewish, I'm sure is like fine, whatever. I mean, it's like here's the thing: I don't know that much about Bucky, but like, I highly doubt that like in 1940s Brooklyn, a Jewish woman could have married like a non-Jewish man mm-hmm. very easily, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't have been basically just like a giant fucking problem. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. I just, I think certainly it could have happened. I'm not saying that all the fic was bad or whatever, but anyway, that was the only time I encountered it before all of a sudden, like this popping up in Check Please is like a thing people would talk about and then popping up in It Fandom because there's a Jewish character. And then we talked for another hour, but we got into some real dicey territory. So that's for our ears only. See you next time. Check This Pleased is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan. That was very legit.